welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. These are the very words of God. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word and telling us in such plain language how we ought to live. We ask that you bless the preaching of your word today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of Christ. And amen. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you here love to-do lists? Fresh sheet of paper, all of your thoughts, tasks, ideas, collected and organized into a column of neat little checkboxes. I saw, some hand, I saw some hands go up. Well, we finally, we finally reached the checkbox section of, Colo- of Colossians. We've been plodding our way through this wonderful epistle going on seven weeks now, and Paul has finally come to his checkboxes, his list of imperatives. He gives us an extensive list of do's and don'ts for how we ought to live together, using... The simple but effective metaphor of putting off and putting on. This metaphor should bring a picture into our mind of clothing. As saints, we are to take off our old ways, our dirty rags, and cast them away, and put on the clean, 
and kingly robes of this new and better way, which is the way of Christ. Paul is, in effect, telling us to put on Christ. He's been building this grand theological case for who Christ is, Christ is and over what Christ rules and how Christ has changed everything, both for the saints in Colossae and, by extension, us. And he's been building this case very carefully and in a particular and intentional order so that when he tells us what to do, we understand the why. We understand why um, the why of what we're doing, and not just the what only. Paul wants us to not only conform to the standard of Christ, he does want us to conform to the standard of Christ, but he doesn't just want us to conform, he wants us to love the standard of Christ, because we understand it. But Paul is a realist. He knows our legalistic heart. He knows our legalistic ways and our desire to self-justify. We want to earn what we've been given. We want to, it's got to be ours. Uh, we've done it. But Paul wants us to know that that isn't how it works. There isn't some super Christian out there who is closer to God. And in particular, talking to the Colossian Christians, he's saying that uh, observing new moons and festivals and, and holding yourself to various rituals and fasts and abstaining from foods, that won't get you any closer to God. All of those things have what he calls this appearance of righteousness or this appearance of something good, but it's all empty. So in typical Pauline fashion, um, the first half of this letter is primarily about what is indicatively true about Christ. Indicatively true means that something something is just simply true. Whether you believe it or not, you don't have to do anything, it's just true. A triangle has three sides. If it doesn't have three sides, it's not a triangle. Water always flows downhill. A boy is not a girl. What Paul has said regarding Christ is indicatively true up to this point. So whether you believe it or not, Christ is preeminent over everything. It's true. So therefore, you really ought to believe it. But he's now laid this foundation for what we are to believe, and he's arrived at the implications of where this belief ought to lead us. He's reached the imperatives, the, the, the to-dos. That can, and these imperatives can only truly come, and he knows this, if they start from a place of indicative truth, what we know to be true. All of Paul's previous arguments will flow into and shape the authority of why he tells us to do what he does. The, 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 the Colossians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, they had problems. They needed encouragement. They needed to be told what to do. But Paul doesn't just jump right in and say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. First, he sets the stage for how they're to think, what, they're, what is true about the God that they're serving. So Paul in, in Colossians has made his argument about who Christ is and the victory that is flowing from Christ's gospel. And now he is going to tell us how this should cause us to act. You see, beloved, theology that just lives in our heads and that's never expressed in reality is an empty and vain thing. Faith without works really is dead. Believe it. James is right. If you believe what Paul has said about Christ and the gospel up to this point, and you truly actually believe it, then that theology will work itself out in how you live your life. Uh, And in this particular case, how you live your life is what Paul describes here. He encompasses in verse 17 as your works, uh, as your words, and your deeds. So faith without works is dead, James tells us that. But also works without faith is also dead, which is why it goes in the order it does. First you believe, and then you do the checklist. So Paul is going to give us our checklist and checklists are, no, checklists are a wonderful thing, but the checklist can only be profitable if we first believe what he has described concerning Christ. Now, we're going to say things that if a, somebody who didn't trust in Christ practiced, their life would be significantly better, but their life wouldn't be saved because of what they do. Okay? Doing these things, doing the, the ways of God are the best ways, and so if you do them, your life will improve. But at the same time, you will 
you will have something called a Christless righteousness, a righteousness devoid of Christ, which is no righteousness in, in, at all. So faith comes first and then comes works. We believe and so therefore we act, and it's always in that order. The gift of faith in Christ, and it is a gift, has, has to come first, or like I said, we have nothing but a Christless righteousness, a righteousness without Jesus. Good deeds without good faith are empty, vain, and actually unpleasing to God. Remember what Isaiah said, your, your good deeds, they're like filthy rags to me. But if you believe, if you believe on Christ, and you've put on Christ, symbolized in the act of baptism, then you are a saint. And, and as a saint, we all should come unto this checklist that Paul has given us with eager anticipation and excitement. We should be excited. Uh, this is direct insight into what our holy and awesome God wants us to do. Who Do you want to hear from God? It's right here. He's going to tell us what to do. Um, so if you've been with us from the beginning of this book, you'll remember that we've been reinforcing this idea that saints, that's who it's, this, this letter is addressed to saints. I'm addressing saints now. This, the, um, the, the saints are those who've been chosen by God to receive the gift of sanctuary access. Saints are God's chosen people who've been given the gift of sanctuary access. Remember, before Christ came, no one had access to the sanctuary, to the Holy of Holies. God resided in the midst of the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And this place, this Holy of Holies, was entirely cut off from the rest of the people. And, and with a curtain that was as thick, the curtain was as thick, it was wide, but it was as thick as a man's hand. This curtain was there to keep people out for, the, for their protection. It was there so that God's glory could be symbolically, of course, safely contained. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't break forth and destroy people. Because God really dwelt there, no one could pass through that curtain and live. And therefore, no one had access to God, save for one man, the high priest. Now that Christ, our new and better high priest, has come, all of that has changed. Whereas before, only the high priest was ever allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, you'll remember, only once a year. And during that time when he went in once a year, his life was in mortal danger. Because the, the, the holy, overwhelming holiness and presence of God was there. And um, they, would tie a le- they would tie a rope to the priest's leg. And if he stopped moving, they'd, they'd have bells on his, on his um on the bottoms of his robes, so they could always hear if he was moving. And if those bells stopped ringing, they knew that the, the holiness of God had broken out and killed him, and they would pull him out by that rope that was attached to his ankle. So that's how it used to be. That's how it used to be. The Holy of Holies was entirely cut off from, from us. But as saints, we now get to crawl up on God's lap. That, that's how intimate we can be with God. He is no longer a danger to us because Christ, in his, in his kindness, absorbed the full wrath and fury of the Father. And so now, when Christ sees us, he sees his children. He sees his very own sons and daughters. So as saints, we have put on Christ through baptism, and therefore we have access to our Heavenly Father within the Holy of Holies at any and at all times. And this reality, this reality that we are saints, is going to shape and inform everything about the following imperatives to which we will now go. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's start with verse 1 and 2. So verses 1 and 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things above. On the earth. So Paul has been arguing that in Christ we have new life. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 13, he tells us that God has, quote, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We have a complete change of station. And again in chapter 2, verse 12, that as saints we have been buried with Christ in baptism. That means we're dead. We're, in, we're, we're, we're rotten and dead in the ground. We've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through faith in the working of God. 
When someone comes face to face with death, and as saints we've all died at least once, when someone comes face to face with death and is given a second chance, often they see the world that has been given back to them with new eyes and with an entirely new and um, blessed perspective of what really actually matters. This is actually the entire plot of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Bailey sees what life would be like if he'd never been born, and then he's given a second chance. And at the end of the movie, um, as his life is given back to him, his circumstances haven't changed at all. He hasn't, all of his problems that drove him to want to jump off a bridge and commit suicide, those haven't changed. But now he's got a new perspective. And one of my favorite lines is, there's a sheriff at his house with a warrant for his arrest, and, and Frank says, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Paul is telling us that because it's true that we've been raised with Christ, everything about our perspective on what matters has changed. Our problems don't go away just because we love Jesus. Uh, and in fact, they usually increase. Following Christ means taking up the cross that he's given you and just trusting to his goodness. The change is that now, instead of being weighed down by earthly things, we can seek, as saints, we can seek and we can set our minds on those things which are above where Christ is. Now, practically speaking, what does it mean to seek, the, uh, to seek and to set your mind on the things above? Well, first, it isn't that Gnostic idea that the physical world is bad and that the spiritual world is good. Okay, that, that lie has been going on since the first century, um, and unfortunately it has far too much influence over many of our evangelical brothers and sisters. Uh, as evangelicals, we're often tempted to believe that, um, you know, the, we're, we're tempted to believe this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, the physical world, but, but we need to remember that the physical world that God has created is good. And while it is groaning for the redemption of Christ, there is nothing sinful about physicality. We, will spend, we won't spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. We will spend eternity with physical, resurrected bodies that are just like Christ. We will have a period of time where we are separated from our bodies. But on the day of resurrection, all the saints will, be, will, will, will rise again and will be given bodies just like Christ. So to set our mind above where Christ is, is to think like Christ thinks, to act like Christ acts, and to set every thought within the framework, the worldview, that Christ is sovereignly reigning over every atom in the universe. And so, therefore, we ought to act like him, think like him, and talk like him. Moving on to verses 3 and 4, he says, Paul says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, saints, our lives are not our own. We have died. Our baptism symbolized our death from the old life. It also symbolized our new life in who we've been baptized into. <clears throat> I, uh, who we've been baptized into, excuse me, and therefore who we belong to. I ask my kids all the time, whose name is written on your forehead? To which they better reply, Jesus. Uh, and so when they're misbehaving, when they're doing things that they know better than, I remind them, Elizabeth reminds them, you can't do that. You've been baptized. Jesus has his name on your head. Your life is not your own. Matthew Henry, uh, the famous Puritan commentator, spoke of the idea of grabbing a man by his baptism should he stray from Christ. That baptism signifies <clears throat> that you have been, that you are owned, that you have been bought with a price, and that you belong to someone else. And so not only does your baptism signify your death, death to your old life, it also covenantally ties you to Jesus and declares that your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's protected. It's safe. No one can take it from you. Why fear those who can only kill the body but cannot kill the soul? Instead, fear him who has the power to cast your soul into hell. But for saints, our lives have been hidden and are safe in Christ. Paul tells us that when Christ comes again, when he appears, that we too will appear with him in glory. 
This is the point where we are raised again to new life and given a resurrected body, just like the one Jesus has. Jesus actually has a body. The reason why Jesus himself doesn't live in your heart is because he has a physical body. He doesn't fit inside there. His spirit does. His spirit indwells us, but Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God the Father in his physical form. That's where he is right now. He actually exists somewhere. It's a mystery, but he actually does exist. He's a real, he's still a real person, and he's more, in fact, he's more real now. I keep getting distracted here, but he's more real now than he was before he died. Now he can walk through walls. He's more physical than the wall here. That's why the, the, the saints would have him appear in the, in the locked room. He was more physical than the, the, than the physical world around him. Um, so Paul kind of fleshes this out in Philippians 3, uh, verses 20 through 21. If you've got your Bibles, you can, you can flip over to Philippians 3. Um, in, in that, in um, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So, saints, when we die, we immediately, when we die, we've had, we've had several of our, our people, or those close to our people die this week. Uh, the, those people in, who are in Christ immediately enter glory and into the presence of Christ. And they're rejoicing now. And we are the ones who are left sad and broken, but they're not. They're, they're, they're in the presence of Christ right now rejoicing. But that's a temporary place. That state is the intermediate state. That's the place that's not your home that you're just passing through. Because one day we will all, they will and we will rise again unto glory um, and including those who have gone on to glory already. One of my favorite hymns is the old hymn, For All the Saints. And it beautifully describes the distinction between dying and going to heaven and the glorious day of resurrection. Um, the, first, the, the first, speaking of the death of a saint, it says this, The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon to faithful warriors come their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. Alleluia. That's where all those loved ones that we have lost have gone, who are in Christ. But then, listen to this. The hymn then says, But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. We are not our own. Our lives are hidden with Christ. And one day... We will appear with him in glory, and our hidden life with Christ will, be cl- will become as clear as the morning sunrise. This indicative reality leads us to do something unexpected. It leads us to go to war. Just like the Son of God goes forth to war, we also must go to war. And we read this in verse 5. Paul says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul wants us to fight. He wants us to go to war against our fleshly desires. He tells us to put to, um, he tells us to put to death, to show no quarter to our desires for sexual uncleanness. Jesus gave the same command. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Become violent in your war against sin. Stop showing it kindness. Show no mercy. Take no prisoners. All must be sacrificed for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Paul describes four elements of what we could call sensual sins or sins of the senses. He begins with the word fornication. And we get our word, uh, he uses the Greek word um, pornea, uh, pornea, from which we get our word pornography. This kind of sexual degeneracy, fornication, it's the most obvious and blatant and usually, generally, has the most collateral damage. Fornication and adultery are twin poisons. And the irony here, the the irony is that the Colossians were having debates over whether or not they should still follow the old covenant dietary laws. While simultaneously, uh, we, we, we can assume, while simultaneously drinking the poison of fornication. 
I imagine Paul had a healthy level of godly frustration at the wildly hypocritical and immature practices of those saints who would want to follow fad diets that, that connect to the Old Covenant. Uh, and they, they want to follow these fad diets to make their bodies and their souls more spiritual, all while engaging in practices that were literally poisoning their bodies and spiritually poisoning their souls. And it's not just the sex act of fornication that Paul is warning against. He also describes something called uncleanness or impurity, which encompasses all kinds of of generally more secret sexual sins, uh, both of the body and of the mind that ensnare us. These are the lurid imaginations and actions of a sick and perverted mind that is apart from Christ. He also calls out passion, um, which can be thought of as an inordinate affection or lust for things um, that we ought not to desire, that we shouldn't have any, we don't have any business desiring. In fact, Paul uses the same word for passion when he describes the shameful lust of homosexuality in Romans one twenty six. Uh, and then the fourth word he uses uh, to encompass these sins of sensuality is evil desire, which is um, a self-centered desire for one's own pleasure at the expense of others. Paul wraps all of these sins um, under the banner of covetousness, uh, which, is, which is a consuming desire for something that doesn't belong to you, which he then says is a form of idolatry. It's interesting uh, that... Uh, in our Heidelberg Catechism, we, we read all about um, the, the Ten Commandments and what is the first commandment and what is idolatry. For, I, I won't read it now, but I would hang on to that and read it. Read what idolatry is. And, and all of us, myself included, this sermon is for me. We have to root this out of our lives. Uh, it's interesting to remember it's, it's, why is sexual sin and idolatry go uh, together? Well, um, the, the sexual deviancy... Sexual sin, sexual morality always goes hand in hand with idolatry. There isn't exceptions with this. The sexual deviancy that took root uh, in our country in the late 60s and 70s, what was it accompanied by? It was accompanied by an equally deviant return to paganism and the worship of Gaia, also known as Mother Earth. This was the time we inherited, or were stuck with, our modern-day environmentalists. And that's not to say environmentalism or wanting to protect the environment is a bad thing. It's why, but environmentalism always goes hand in hand with um, the worship of Mother Earth, always goes hand in hand with sexual immorality. This is why people like us who really do want to live in a world of clean water, clean air, and a thriving Shire-like environment so rarely see eye to eye with those environmentalists who worship Mother Earth. It's not because we want polluted streams. It's because they're, um, the, the reason that they're doing what they're doing is entirely different than the reason why we would do what we do. Much of the environmental movement is fueled by sexual sin that leads people from the worship of the creator to worship the creation. Um, the abhorrent sexual practices described by Paul in Romans went hand-in-hand hand with idolatry. Hear this from Romans 1, 22-26. Uh, Quote, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, therefore, they're worshiping, they're worshiping this, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Idolatry and sexual sin always go together. Beloved, if you are struggling with sexual sin, sexual temptation, find help. Come talk to me. Talk to Luke. Talk to Les. Talk to, talk to, to Kirby. Talk to anyone. Talk, the, the best thing you could do is get that sin into the light, because if you are struggling with sexual sin, you are also being an idolater. It was John Owens, I think, the Puritan John Owen, who said, sin is like grapes. It always comes in bunches. Whatever that sin is you're dealing with, it's not alone. There's other sins that go along with it. But why is this a problem? Why is sexual immorality a problem? 
Well, verses 6 and 7 tell us, quote, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked while you lived in them. Close quote. So, here's a promise. Live a life of sexual morality, and that makes you a son or daughter of disobedience. And Paul is promising that you can be sure, you can bet the farm, that the wrath of God is coming for such sons and daughters of disobedience. But this letter is addressed to saints, sons and daughters of the king of kings. These are the old ways. These are the old clothes we used to wear. Uh, And Paul is exhorting us. He says, go to war against these lusts and put such practices to death. Verse 8 says, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Paul again gives us one of those beautiful, although um, hard to read, checklists. Um, and, and this checklist is the spiritual clothing that we're supposed to cast aside. He says, put off or, or put away these sins of the tongue. Uh, again, going with the language of battle and going to war against the members of our bodies that cause us to sin, Paul takes aim at the tongue. He starts with anger, which comes in many forms, both hot and cold. Hot anger is, is uncontrolled and, and it's often wild in its response to a perceived wrong. Cold anger is a calculated fury that is carefully protected and cultivated and grown, and it's always addressed toward another person, again, for the same reason, in response to a perceived wrong. One of the problems with anger, and there are many problems with anger, but one I'll say today is that it's so uncreative. It's so cliché. It's just the default response everybody does when we feel we've been sinned against. Let's get more creative. There's nothing unique or special about your anger, and it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. It makes us weak. It makes us incapacitated. Solomon tells his son, uh, we assume he's a young son, that if he wants to be a mighty man, a warrior, a hero, that he must first learn to control his heart and its natural inclination toward anger. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Our culture is plagued by comic book movies filled with cartoon heroes. These movies are made because people want to hear and see stories of heroes. But Solomon says that simply being slow to anger and ruling your spirit is more heroic than a mighty warrior or a captain who captures a city. We must control our anger. And in wrath, he says, uh, Paul describes wrath. Wrath is like anger in its fierceness and intensity. It's very, very similar. But he also mentions malice. Malice is a, a subtler and craftier form of anger that takes its shape in its brazen disregard of damage caused to others, to other people. It's malignant. It seeks to intentionally hurt others for the sheer pleasure of watching them suffer. James, James uses the same Greek word to describe, uh, to describe that we translate as rampant wickedness. That's what malice is. Uh, so we've got, mal- we've, got, we've got anger, we've got wrath, we've got malice, and now we come to blasphemy. Um, which we usually associate with vilification against God. But other translations um, translate it as slander. So whether it's blasphemy or slander, um, it could be against God. Slander against God is blasphemy. And slander against those made in the image of God um, can also work. I mean, you can apply it to either one. Um, And beloved, slander is one of the worst sins. It's one of the worst sins we can ever commit. It's one of the seven things the Lord hates and finds an abomination. Slander is intentionally lying about someone with the purpose of making them look bad. Saints, guard your lips from slander. Flee it. Don't have anything to do with it. Also, obscene and filthy talk have no place on our lips. We have the name of Christ on our heads. So don't blaspheme that name by using your head, your mouth, to slander God or your neighbor. James warns us, he says, quote, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
Okay, James, I think you made your point. No, no, no. He goes on to say, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Our mouths can do irreparable harm. Guard your lips. Guard your tongue. Guard your words. Verse 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So lying to, another, lying, uh, one, uh, lying to one another is another sin of the tongue. Paul here assumes, uh, we, can, uh, we believe he assumes, James certainly assumes it, that these ancient people um, are just naturally lie. They just lie to each other. Um, the, 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 the Colossian Christians, the ones that James are writing to, they're, they're former pagans. He just assumes they're lying to each other and tells them to stop it. Uh, Truth-telling, you have to understand, is almost exclusively a Christian virtue. For the Gentile pagan world in Colossae, lying to one another would be simply second nature. No one trusted anyone because everyone lied to everyone else. Paul says that lying is a part of the old man. They do it. They do it. uh, uh, Your old man does it. Um, But but it needs to be cast aside. You need to to flee um, any type of falsehoods. Uh, the old rags that we used to live in allowed for us in a, in a sick kind of way to lie to one another, although we were miserable in it. But now, now we've been clothed with Christ. We've put on Christ. Now the kingly robes of Christ's righteousness we wear make such lies unthinkable. We've been renewed in knowledge and put on the new man. We are now wearing Christ and such lies have no place in our speech. Verse 11 Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. That's a wide range of different people. And and Paul just said that if you've put on Christ, there's no difference. By wearing Christ, we will meet others who are also wearing Christ. And these people often will not be like us in culture, in religious history, social status, intelligence, or physical abilities. They may not look like us. But they will be wearing the same thing, Christ. We will have more unity with those who put on Christ than any other cohort of people in the world. This is why such things as racial reconciliation, Black Lives Matter, reparations, and tearing down statues of Robert E. Lee are pointless, destructive, doomed to fail, and actually only further inflame the social distrust between different people groups. You see, the reason why the races, and I, and I know there's really no such thing as races, but for the sake of, for the sake of the, our discussion, the reason why the races don't trust each other is because of the wickedness of man's heart, which originated at the Tower of Babel. Our rebellion against God caused the nations to be scattered, to not trust each other, to not understand each other. And only when each nation repents of their rebellion and sin and puts on Christ can we ever hope to see actual racial reconciliation. And so that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. We should expect there to be racial reconciliation. Isaiah tells us in chapter 60, um, verse 3, he says, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Christ is here, and all the races are being drawn unto him. It was our gospel reading today. They'll come from the east and the west and the south and the north, and they'll recline at the table of the king. So we should expect there to be reconciliation between all the nations on earth, but we must not forget that it was the sinfulness of man that got us into the mess, and the sinfulness of humanistic ideas cannot get us out. Only God can do that. Only Christ can. Only when we put on Christ, both individually and as nations, will we see true peace between the nations as the gospel of Christ fills their borders and drives out the hostility that exists in the heart of man toward his brother. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Okay, we made it through the passages on sin. We're now to verse 12. Um, When we launched our church in May of 2021, Brett Baker who is one of the elders at uh, Trinity Church, says that if we ever start running out of space on Sunday mornings to just make sure we preach on sin, and it will thin out the herd. 
Hopefully that won't be true this morning, but we have made it through the don'ts and are now at the list of things that we should be doing. Uh, First, Paul addresses us again as elect or chosen. Uh, He says, as the elect of God. So so don't miss this. Don't, don't, Don't just read over that. Don't gloss over that. You are, as a saint, you're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be one of us. You belong here with God's people. You've been elected by God, and it's not an accident, and it's not a fluke, that you're being addressed here as the elect of God. You, true, you are here purely by the good pleasure of our Father, but he has made you holy. He set you apart as a saint with access unto him. And not only are you holy, but you're also loved. Beloved, in fact, um, which Paul uses the word here, uh, uh, the Greek word agape, where we get the idea of unconditional love. Beloved, God loves you even though you and myself don't deserve it. So here's what we can do. Here's, what we can, here's how we can respond. Uh, as thankful and obedient um, saints, um, as we respond to the gracious and merciful love of God, you ready for what we can do? Ready? It's easy to understand. super easy to understand. It's impossible to do without the Holy Spirit, but we can do all things through Christ. We can love one another. We can love one another. Paul says, put on tender mercies. That also, that, that phrase tender mercies can also be translated as compassionate hearts. So you've cast off the old clothing of lust, idolatry, and malice. And now put on your hearts, now, now put on hearts that are filled with love, compassion, and tender mercy toward one another. Paul fills this out further by saying, such tender mercies lead unto kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Now, I got a question. What is the biggest difference? What's the biggest difference between how we used to relate to one another, back when we had our old man, our old clothes still on, and how we relate to one another now that we have put on Christ? What's the big difference? Well, before, we saw people as objects for our pleasure. We saw people as objects for our desire or, or objects for our anger to pour out upon. But now, now that we've put on Christ, we see others as better than ourselves. You see, Paul exhorts us in Philippians 2.3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering all require us to esteem others better than ourselves. But Paul isn't finished. In verse 13, he goes on to say, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We must all bear with one another. This means that we'll be forced to confront sin in our midst and choose to let love cover a multitude of transgressions. You see, when we live in community, especially close community, such as a small church like ours, or a small school like we're starting, uh, certainly within our workplaces or the, 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 the close confines of our, family, uh, of our families, um, our sins, our sins, our habits, our weird oddities will interfere and conflict with those habits of our neighbor. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, but when and how often. Um, in my preparation, I came across an old song that said, that said this. I thought it was appropriate. It says, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. We're, we are to recognize that it's going to be hard to, be, to bear with one another. We're gonna bear, we have to bear with one another, forgive one another, but we do it because that's how Christ has done it. In, in the story of the Good Samaritan, um, we, the, the Good Samaritan not only gave of his money, but he also gave of his time. Uh, but more than that, he gave also, if you remember, um, after he got the, the Samaritan set up in the, in the hotel, um, he gave of his future time and money. He says, take this money, I'll be back. I'll be back to check on this guy. Um, if I owe you more, let me know. He, he simply, he realized, this man realized, the, the Good Samaritan realized 
The Samaritan wasn't beat up. The Samaritan was a good guy. Sorry about that. But the, but the, but the Samaritan realized that he was now bound to, to this man who had been robbed simply because he had stopped to care for him. It's the reason why the, the religious people didn't want to do it. They didn't want to be bound to him. They didn't want to have to take responsibility. And so the more you bear with one another and forgive one another, the more opportunities you will receive from our Father to bear with one another and forgive one another. It's like, be careful about praying for patience. God will give you lots of opportunities for patience. This bearing with one another is never going to stop. Not until glory, at least. But remember the why. Don't forget the why. Neither does the unconditional love of God for us stop. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Um, in, in the metaphor of clothing, Paul describes love somewhat like a belt that holds all of these kingly robes together perfectly. All of the practices up to this point that he is telling us to do have been perfectly shown by Christ. And so when we put on love, we are putting on Christ, who we know from chapter 1 holds all the atoms of the universe in perpetuity because he is before all things and in him all things consist and that is why love, Christ-like love, is the bond of perfection. Stay with me. We've got three verses left. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Beloved, when we have an attitude toward our brothers and sisters in Christ that is full of tender mercies, compassion, meekness, and love, we can expect the peace of God to rule in our hearts. Jesus told his disciples mere hours before dying on the cross. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God's peace ought to decide and control our emotional response to everything we face. Everything. That's what it means for the peace of God to rule in our hearts. His peace determines how we act and respond Paul then finishes this sentence by adding, and be thankful. Just throws that in there. Throws that in there. Be thankful. You see, thankfulness is one of those character traits that we only experience when we recognize in humility that the blessings we have been given are gifts and not something we've actually earned. Our righteousness is not something we've earned. When we are thankful, we are protected. Don't miss this. When we're thankful, we're protected from lust, from anger, and we are in the mindset to live a life uh, of love and tender mercies toward one another. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts, hearts to the Lord. At the beginning of this chapter in verse 9, Paul describes his, uh, excuse me, at the beginning of this letter, not this chapter, in chapter 1, Verse 9, Paul describes his prayer for these new Colossian Christians. And he says this, he says, quote, He does not cease to pray for them and to ask that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we are given that wisdom that Paul, is, that Paul has prayed for. Wisdom that manifests itself in a very particular way in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs and not just reading them either for saints singing is not something that only those with natural abilities or interests engage in singing is not a hobby or a course elective within the christian walk it is a fundamental requirement for kingdom work we are filled with the word of christ and what pours forth from our full and overflowing bucket ought to be music unto the glory of god when we sing with a hearty abandon during worship like we just did, and throughout the week, our songs are teaching, they're teaching and admonishing one another. That's what they're doing. They're actually doing something. Weekly, robust singing is something we aim for here at Christ Covenant Church. We'll be having a psalm sing after worship today, and we'll, we'll be learning to sing Psalm 1, and also another hymn that may be as good as the Son of God goes forth to war. You have to wait and see what that is, though. Both of these songs will cause us to teach and admonish one another. And as Augustine once uh, was fond of saying, he who sings prays twice. Saints, if singing is not something that comes naturally to you, don't ignore it. 
It's not merely one of the arts. It's the queen of all art, and it is foundational to the life and spiritual health of every Christian. Don't discount it just because you think you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Trust me, you can do far more than you think you can. Through Christ, all things are possible. Singing is also something that always follows true reformation. When a culture is reformed by the Holy Spirit, as it was, for example, during the Protestant Reformation, new music pours forth in abundance. As we seek, as our, as our small body seeks to bring the reformational blessings of classical Christian education to Lewis County, um, and this is for the first time, this is, this is really never taken root here, uh, we will be incorporating singing into every single school day, and in many cases, almost every class. Every day will begin with the whole school, gathering together to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for the glory of Christ the King. So, sing loud, sing often, and do everything you can to sing skillfully with grace in your heart unto the Lord. Finally, verse 17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul tells us um, that all of our words and all of our actions must not be poisoned by slander and lust as they were before we put off the old man, but instead be done unto the Lord Jesus as we put on Christ in all that we say and all that we do. This is our way of thanking God for creating us, thanking him for redeeming us and seeking out the good works he has set up for us to do so that we might fill out his kingdom with our obedience of our lives. Paul tells the Corinthian Christians, uh, not the Colossian Christians, but the Corinthian Christians, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As Doug Wilson once said, quote, our God expects us to give him glory in everything, right down to the last french fry at the bottom of the bag. So let me give you three things to remember as we close. Number one, go to war against your anger and your lust. The Son of God goes forth to war. Jesus, Paul tells us, disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of his enemies, triumphing over them. This exact word is used uh, when Paul tells us to put off our old self. The exact word of going to war. Just as Christ went to war against the principalities and powers, we should go to war against our old man, our anger, our lust, and we should put on Christ. If you stay with us after worship for the psalm sing, you will learn the hymn, Rise Again, Ye Lion-Hearted. Let me share one of the stanzas in the song that describes the kind of lion-hearted saints we should strive to be. Listen to this. These the men by fear unshaken, facing danger dauntlessly. These no witching lust hath taken, lust that lures to vanity. Mid the roar and rattle of tumultuous battle, in desire they soar above all that earth would have them love. So, go to war against your anger and your lust. Number two, remember that love covers a multitude of sins. We are to live in fellowship with one another, and the only way we can do this is if we are putting on love, which is the belt that holds these new kingly clothes we've been given together. People will always be people. They will always be needy, get on your nerves, and hurt you both intentionally and unintentionally. You must, you must forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. And this can only be done when we recognize that we have been loved with an unconditional love. And so therefore, we must also love without condition, without reservation, because love covers a multitude of sins. And finally, sing to one another and sing unto the Lord. Your songs are an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is within you. God has written a book filled with songs for us to sing. These are 150 songs to learn, and they're also called psalms. Let's learn them by heart. Let's sing them with all of our heart and do so as our offering to the triumph of Christ over his enemies and his love which conquered our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.